Alright, we are in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, in verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people... May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Father, we pray over the teaching of your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit that you would be our ongoing teacher. That there would be a continuance, Lord Jesus, of the things that we have learned and the things that we know and the expansion of our hearts as we consider you and your word. We pray as we enter into now the next book in this great library of books, Your Word, Father, that we would see and understand the interpretation, Lord, the application in our lives, and we would have, Lord, the motivation to bring Jesus to a lost and dying world. May we recognize the times in which we live. And I pray, Father, Your Word would ignite us, that You would stir us up. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The date was July 18th, 586 B.C. The third and final siege of Jerusalem by Babylon was underway. It would by far be the worst tragedy in Jewish history to that time. And the final blow against the failing kingdom of Judah. We watched that kingdom fail. And we saw five great revivals. We talked through those as we studied First and Second Chronicles. But now we've come to the end. The last king was Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had Zedekiah's eyes put out, had his sons murdered before his eyes, just before he was blinded, so that that would be his final memory. And they were taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now during that time, a shift takes place. You see, it's the Lord who sets up and deposes kings. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, and Babylon, the mighty empire, would be overtaken by Persia, which would be the second great world empire. And Persia's king, Cyrus. But we begin at this tragedy in 586. Psalm 79 verse 1 says, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. And this is not metaphor. This is history. As Babylon destroyed, wiped out, raised Jerusalem to the ground. Psalm 74, verse 7, They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, Let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Well, there was one. Jeremiah was there. Jeremiah the prophet was there. The prophet who had been warning of this day for more than 40 years. The last 40 years of Jerusalem's history. But nobody took him seriously. Nobody paid attention as he sounded the alarm that God's people were going down. No one could believe such horror would come on God's people. Much less Jerusalem as holy city or even worse yet the temple. In fact, what the false prophets were prophesying at the time was, the temple, the temple, we have the temple here. So as long as we stick close to God's temple, we're fine, we'll be okay. Jeremiah was one of very few voices saying, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you will not be okay. Your day has come. Now Jeremiah sat there and watched Jerusalem go up in smoke. Tradition has it that he was on the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been there, it's a panoramic view of the city with the Temple Mount right in front of you. As you look across the Kedron Valley. And Jeremiah would sit there on the Mount of Olives watching Jerusalem burn to the ground. That soft orange and red glow on his face as his eyes were filled with tears, both probably from the smoke as well as from his weeping. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And as the flames engulfed the city, 
Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, the book that we'll study in I don't know how long. And as he wrote Lamentations, well, let me, let me share a couple of passages with you from there. Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord has rejected His altar. He has abandoned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained His hand from destroying. And He has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, meaning the temple. Because you see, without the temple, the law had no place to be resolved. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Lamentation is a book of sorrow. Of this very event, a lament over Israel, over Judah, over Jerusalem, and the great loss of the people. But even here, in the book of Lamentations, in the midst of his mourning, the weeping prophet was inspired to pen some of the most encouraging and profound words found in all of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22 tells us the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. How could you write that, Jeremiah, while the city goes up in flames? Great is His faithfulness? The Lord is compassionate? How so? I don't see it. Jeremiah as a prophet of the Lord who prophesied doom, yet had from the Holy Spirit of God a glimmer of hope. He saw something in the Lord. Ezra would see the same thing. Ezra in the same way. Ezra the chronicler. I, I've told you, I believe Ezra was the writer of First and Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra, possibly Nehemiah, although Nehemiah himself may have written that one. And so... As Second Chronicle ends with a glimmer of hope, so Ezra begins with a glimmer of hope. If you looked at Second Chronicles, in fact, go back now to Ezra and Second Chronicles. The last couple of verses of Second Chronicles parallel. They're almost word for word exactly the same as the first few verses of the book of Ezra. Second Chronicles 36:22 says, "In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, "Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now we pointed this out on Wednesday night. Between verses 21 and 22, there is a span of 70 years. Ezra, as he chronicles the end of Judah, doesn't stop there. But before closing the pages or rolling up the scroll of Second Chronicles of that part of his writing, he jumps 70 years and says, but, but, but wait, wait, yes, Judah went down. But God stirred up this, this Cyrus, king of Persia, and the people would come back. A glimmer of hope. And we begin this morning with the book of Ezra to see that, that stirring, to see that hope coming alive for the people as God remains faithful. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I was talking to one dear sister last Sunday and she was saying, absolutely amazing. The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. We don't always see it. We may feel at times like we are being led off into captivity, like we are in despair and in distress, and there is no ready answer for us, but God is faithful. Don't ever forget that. God is faithful. But how did this people, beloved by God, come to such an awful ruin? I think there's a key verse also in Lamentations that tells us. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 9. She did not consider her future. She did not consider her future, therefore she has fallen astonishingly. Therefore she has no comforter, speaking of Judah. She did not consider her future. How applicable is that to you and to me today and to the world in which we live? Do we consider our future? I'm not talking today or tomorrow or next week or ten years from now. I'm talking about our future. In the Lord, have we considered this? 
As I told you, there were other prophets in Jerusalem at the time speaking comfort, speaking peace, speaking whatever the people wanted to hear. Jeremiah comes along and he begins to speak the truth. But people rarely want to hear the truth. Was it last week? Just last week now? That it was 9-11? Did you remember when you woke up in the morning? It was hard to find it even mentioned on the news. Because we don't want to think about it. How quickly a people forget. Because the truth is something that we just... We don't want to hear it. Unless it's good news. People rarely want the truth. Paul says the same thing would happen in these days. He said in 2 Timothy 4.3, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. History, even Judah's history, can be our teacher if we'll listen. Jeremiah saw it all come down. He warned the people the devastating judgment of God was coming for two reasons. Two reasons. This is why it happened. Number one, the people needed a remedy. They needed a remedy. Again, in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, until there was no remedy. Until there was no remedy, literally no healing. There needed to be a remedy. The people needed a remedy. A remedy for what? Well, gang, God loved His people so much that all the way back at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, He was compelled to command them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before Me. No other gods. Before they ever even entered the land, God called it ahead of time. Now, some would call that narrow-minded. No other gods before Me. Jesus is the only way. Oh, come on. There's lots of great ways to God. As long as you do so sincerely and, and with love. My friends, God loves us so much that He gave His only begotten Son, the way, the truth, and the life, who no man comes to the Father except through Him. One way, because He loves us so much, and told us there was one way, and made it absolutely clear. And so with the children of Israel, He begins, you shall have no other gods. The sickness of Israel, seemingly without cure, was idolatry. They came into the land and they adopted the idolatrous pagan practices of all the nations around. They began to to worship after and follow after the Asherim and the Baals and the Molechs. To their own devastation, some would say back in those days, why can't we love God and Asherah? Why not? We're not denying God. We want to follow God and Baal. God and Molech. God and Mammon. We're not saying no to God. We're just saying yes to other options as well. Jesus said the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it, Matthew 7.14. So the people of Israel needed a cure. Their sickness got worse worse and worse. They added to the Lord, going from a bad place to a horrid place, thinking as so many people do today, that they were broadening their horizons. They were tolerant. They were open-minded. They were able to embrace other ways in addition to God. They didn't replace God. They just added to their faith. And that was the sickness. See the sickness today? You see the parallel in the world in which we live? It's not no to Jesus. It's Jesus and. God loved the people so much, He said, no, you shall not do that. Who among you, husbands, or wives would tolerate a spouse who claims to love you and someone else. I mean, that destroys marriages, right? Why would you put up with that? No marriage can last that kind of a mentality. Oh, I love you, honey, and her. <laughs> oh, I don't love you less. God was not willing to put up with that, but nor was God willing to give up so easily, so he prescribed a cure. God came up with a remedy. Gang, the remedy was captivity. 
And we need to understand, maybe this is a different way of looking at it for you. It is for me. I always thought of the captivity as pure punishment. But punishment for punishment's sake doesn't do anybody any good. God doesn't punish just to punish. He punishes for discipline to bring out a better result. And the cure here, the remedy of captivity, was to send these people, the remedy for their sin was to send them to captivity to the fountainhead of idolatry. Consider this, gang. Their problem was idolatry, so God said, okay, you want idols? I'll send you to Babylon. The place where idolatry began in human history. The place where all of idolatry grew out of and ultimately came from. It all began there. Back in the book of Genesis, you read about a man named Nimrod. Of the line of Noah... And and as Nimrod grows up, he's a mighty hunter against the Lord. This is a man who stood up against God in rebellion. He and his wife, a woman named Semiramis. Some of you have heard our historical discussions about her. These two introduced what the book of Revelation calls the Babylonian mystery religion. They introduced paganism into the world against the Lord. It was Nimrod who founded a city named Babel. It was at Babel that the people built a tower, a monument to the stars and to their own, their own human ingenuity. Babel. And God said, you want Babel? I'll give you Babel. And they began to Babel. They could not understand each other's languages and God spread them out from there. Jerusalem is God's city. He claimed it for His own. He put His name there. He said, this will be my dwelling place. Does Satan have a city on earth? I submit to you that if he does, it's Babylon. It's Babylon. God said, you want idols? I will send you to the place where it all began. And to the place where even at that time was the the greatest number of idols were in Babylon. And the people went there. So in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's siege hauled these people off to the land 900 miles away from their home. They were dragged to this place of their remedy, not realizing at the time this was God's remedy. Because note this, when the Jews returned to the land, idolatry would never again be a problem for the Jewish people. After this, they never went back to idolatry. The remedy worked. Oh, they would have other problems. They would have lack of faith and a difficulty seeing God, even seeing Jesus when He came to the earth. But idolatry was not the issue anymore. I was remembering back in the 70s, I believe it was, when Schick Hospitals came out with a new cure for smoking. If you wanted to quit smoking, you could go to Schick and, and their, their procedure there was smoke them if you got them. I mean, put a man in a room, put a woman in a room with stacks of packs and just smoke, 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 smoke until you were so absolutely sick of smoking you would quit. I'm not sure how well it worked. But I'll tell you this. It worked in Babylon. The people got so sick of the idols and the life all around them that when they went back to the land they would never return to idolatry. The remedy worked. That was one reason why they were sent to Babylon. The second reason was the land needed rest. The people needed a remedy. The land needed rest. Back in the book of Exodus chapter 23, verse 10, the Lord said, You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Work for seven, take, work for six, take the seventh year off. Now, I like that idea. And if you're with me, let's start a whole new thing. We're going to work for six years and then we're going to take a year off. And we're not going to work. We're going to go on vacation for a year. It sounds like a great idea. Why didn't it work? Well, it's not very productive. I mean, Lord, a whole year? I mean, we can turn our fields and stuff, but to take a year off, and I'll tell you what, well, while that guy's taking his, his year off over there, I can, I can make a little extra money here because they're going to come for me. You know, to me, for the, for the fresh yield. Besides, who could survive taking a year off? I mean, let me ask you, how many of you could take a year off and be okay? Maybe a few of you could. And if you're one of those people, please give me your number because I may be calling you if things get bad. 
But who, who could survive? You think about Israel living off the land. They were mostly farming people. And living off the land to take an entire year and not live off the land. What if the land doesn't produce the way God promised it would? What if God doesn't do what He said He was going to do? Well, the people had a greed problem and they had a, a lack of faith. And the land needed rest, but they would not give it rest. They come into the land, and across 490 years, they would not take one of those Sabbath years off. Not a single one. Seventy Sabbath years were skipped. How long were they in Babylon? Seventy years. Because the land needed rest. And the people needed a remedy. So the Lord sent them to Babylon. That's the background to the book of Ezra as we open up. And again in the first verse, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is one of the most shocking introductions to a Bible book in the entire Bible. This is one that as you read it, now you might not see it at first, but it is absolutely stunning. In October of 539 B.C., mighty Babylon fell. Who could have predicted that? The greatest world power in all of history, and truly the first world power to dominate the entire world, was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. He was the first world dictator. There would be four before the last one, Rome, finally collapsed in and of itself. Babylon was first. But Babylon fell to a coalition power of Medes and Persians. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, coming together to take down Babylon. And now we have Cyrus. This Cyrus king of Persia, who is the new king of the second superpower to come to the world stage, and he says, the Lord is God, and he's stirred up my heart to send his people Israel back to Judah and to build him a temple there. It's incredible. Absolutely astonishing. Why? Well, what makes it all so shocking is not the kindness of this king. It's not the greatness or the overthrow of of Babylon. It's not his proclamation, but it's how Cyrus, king of Persia, had his heart stirred. That should amaze us. Keep a finger there in Ezra and turn over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Oh, midway into the Bible, Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 24. I get tickled at stuff like this, so bear with me if I get a little excited, but this is, this is just astonishing. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I the Lord am maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of His servant and performing the purpose of His messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. Now stop right there. I will raise up her ruins again. Isaiah, what are you talking about? When Isaiah prophesied, it was in the days of Hezekiah. Rebuild what? Things were great. Judah was well built. Jerusalem was beautiful. What are you talking about? Ruins. Go on. It is I who says, verse 27, to the depth of the sea be dried up and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, he says, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. What name is that? Cyrus. Cyrus. Verse 4, For the sake of Jacob my servant, and Israel my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. 
And he goes on there. Gang, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah wrote this prophecy. And we know this historically. It was during the reign of King Manasseh that Isaiah, probably by the order of King Manasseh, was placed in that hollow log and sawed in half. That's how Isaiah died. He was absolutely dead in Manasseh's reign. And here, 150 years later, at the tail end of the 70 years of captivity, we find a king of Persia named Cyrus. Exactly as Isaiah had written. Not only is he named here, but the Lord gives a perfect description of how this Cyrus would conquer Babylon. Verse 27, back in chapter 44, says, It is I who says of the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. Mark that in your mind. Down in verse 2 of chapter 45, I'll go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places so you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. He even says in verse 1 of chapter 45, I have taken you by the right hand to subdue subdue nations, to loose the loins of kings. Now, check this out. Here's what happened. Cyrus, the king of Persia, with the Persian army and with Darius and the Medes, they surrounded the great capital city, Babylon. The city of the Babylonian Empire, that world empire, the Babylonian walls were huge. 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. Around the guard towers of Babylon, around that wall, 220 towers kept watch in protection. Six chariots could rise side by side on the top of the wall that surrounded Babylon. This was an impenetrable city thought to be invincible. The Euphrates River came right up to the city and was diverted and went around it like a huge moat so that you'd have to go across the river somehow. That moving body of water even to get into Babylon. It provided water for the city for their consumption and and provided water around the city for their protection. And Babylon's storehouses were so rich It was said if the city were ever to come under under terrific siege that they could live 20 years off of what was stored up on the inside. Before even having to open up the gates and come out for food. Inside, as Cyrus and Darius with their armies were on the outside quietly approaching, on the inside a party was going on. A man by the name of Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson and acting ruler at the time, Belshazzar was having a feast. A big party. He called for the gold vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem to be brought in. And they begin drinking out of the vessels. And they are smashed. And they are having a great time. And they are toasting their false gods. And they are boasting of their invincibility. And they are surrounded. But they're singing and drinking and parting it up. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. They're just having a great time. Because no one can touch them. Suddenly, as they're partying, a hand appears. Just a hand. Belshazzar sees it. In fact, the Bible tells us the king's face, Daniel 5.6, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. What does that mean? It means he needed some depends. His hip joints went slack and his knees began to knock together and this, this king, this Belshazzar, puppet king really, there in Babylon, he watched as this hand wrote and it wrote four words. Many, mighty, mo, no, many, many, tekel ufarsin. What does that mean? Nobody knew. They just saw the writing on the wall. This, by the way, is where we get that phrase. I saw the handwriting on the wall because the hand wrote on the wall. And no one knew what it meant. And a woman who was there said, well, wait a minute, there, there, was, a, there was a man here, a, a wise man here in Babylon who once answered your grandfather's dream. Go ask him. So they bring in Daniel. What does this mean? Daniel reads it. Mene means God has numbered your days, Belshazzar. Tekel, you've been weighed and found lacking. Ufarsin, your kingdom is now divided between Medes and Persians. 
while Belshazzar's men ran to get him a clean pair of pants. Outside the walls, that very night, Cyrus and Darius enacted a brilliant plan. Six miles north of Babylon, they diverted the Euphrates River into a huge lake. It filled up. And as the riverbed dried up, what did God say? I will dry up. I will make your rivers dry. Verse 27. As the riverbed dried up, they marched their armies right into the canals under the city wall. They were in the middle of the, of the Babylonian Empire, the middle of the city, before anyone even knew they were there. Which is what God said would happen. Absolutely amazing. What did the Lord prophesy regarding the taking of Babylon by, Syria, by, by Cyrus? He said, I will make your rivers run dry. I will loose the loins of kings. I mean, that cracks me up. God even prophesied ahead of time, 150 years ahead, that Belshazzar would wet himself. This is Bible, gang. And he says, I will give you treasures of darkness. The storehouses of Babylon were rich and full. Cyrus received all that. The prophecy gang was perfect. Okay, but, but why would Cyrus later set the people of Israel free and even decree their return to rebuild the temple? Well, Josephus tells us that Cyrus heard about this prophecy. Heard that he had been named. In fact, I wonder if as Cyrus came into the city, he ran into an old man, an 85-year-old man who said, I bet your name is Cyrus. And he said, How do you know that? And Daniel replied, one of our prophets wrote about you 150 years ago. Really? Yeah, let me show you. And he unrolls the scroll. I don't know if that's how it happened. But I do know, again, as Josephus tells us, that Cyrus learned of the prophecy. And so wanted to fulfill it in and of himself. Well, if he wanted to fulfill it, doesn't that deny the prophecy? No, because the prophecy was made first. He just fell right in line, which is always what happens with biblical prophecy. Truly, as Ezra wrote, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. The Lord accomplished all these things. Now, now watch this. We're still in Isaiah. What words did God use in this prophecy to describe this Cyrus, king of Persia? Look at verse 28 of chapter 44. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Look down in verse 1. What is the other name he's given? Verse 1 of 45. The Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed. Interesting. My shepherd. My anointed one. John 10.11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 1 Peter 5.4, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Jesus is God's shepherd. Isaiah 45 verse 1. My anointed. That word there in the Hebrew is what you'd expect, Mashiach, Messiah. My anointed one. John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman at the well in Samaria comes to Jesus and they're talking and she says, I know Mashiach is coming, he who is called Christ. But when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She was the first person, by the way, that Jesus declared He was Messiah too. Jesus is my shepherd, my anointed. Cyrus is called my shepherd, my anointed. A picture is emerging in the book of Ezra that we need to track because it's going to take us all the way through the study. Go back to Ezra now. And by the way, as, as we enter this book, as we typically like to do by introduction, here is a simple outline that you may want to note for this book. Just for paying attention, it will help you as we study over the next few weeks. Part 1 is chapters 1 through 6. Part 2, chapters 7 through 10. It's just 10 chapters. We're going to move through this book pretty quickly. And then Nehemiah and then Esther before the end of the year. We've got some great things ahead of us this fall. But part 1, chapters 1 through 6, is the construction and restoration of the temple. So the first, roughly first half of the book, that's what it's about. The construction and restoration of the temple. The main character of the first part is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. You'll see his name there. Coming up, I think, in about chapter 3 is when we first see his name mentioned. Zerubbabel, whose name means forged in Babylon. 
which I think is interesting. This man, by the way, who is in the line, I'm not sure how many grandsons down the line, but 70 years later, he is in the line of the kings of Judah. Zerubbabel is, he is a descendant of, of Zedekiah. So this descendant in the line of the kings of Judah, who will not claim kingship for himself in this story, but he does lead the people back for the construction and restoration of the temple, and his name, forged in Babylon, is perfect, because that's where his faith was forged. In captivity, in distress, in difficulty, which is always where faith is forged, is it not? Forged in Babylon, Zerubbabel leads the first remnant back to Jerusalem, For this reason, the construction and the restoration of the temple. That's what they go back to do. Part 2, beginning in chapter 7 through chapter 10, is the instruction and reformation of the people. Part 1, the construction and restoration of the temple. Part 2, the instruction and reformation of the people. The main character, beginning in chapter 7 and moving on, it's the first time you'll see him, is Ezra. Ezra who shows up, he finally enters the story. He leads the second group of people, now out of Babylon, back to the city. And the story shifts from building a temple to building the people. It shifts from restoration of the temple to a revival of the people. But here's what you need to get. I didn't give you that outline just so that you could follow scholastically or intellectually or or biblically. That outline is our outline. That story, the story of Ezra, is our story. Look at chapter 4 of the book of Ezra in verse 8. You know what? I'm sorry. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Zotzedak, and the rest of their brothers, and the priests, uh, the brothers, the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah. And you might be saying, hey, Rick, 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 Yeshua, Yeshua. Isn't there something significant there? Yeah, his name was Yeshua. It was a common name. It's Joshua. So don't get too excited, except that Jesus himself had a very common name because he was very human as well as being God. But going on, it tells us that the sons of Judah, verse 9 there, and the sons of Hinnadab with their sons, the brothers of Levites, to oversee the workmen in the building of, in the, in the temple of God. Now, verse 10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David, of Israel, the first thing they do upon return, first group back, come into Jerusalem, they don't start to rebuild the wall. That would be Nehemiah's job later on. They don't even really start the reconstruction of the city. They go straight to the temple, or what was left of it, which was nothing. And they lay a foundation. That's the first thing that they do upon return. Lay the foundation of what would become the second temple. Psalm 11, verse 3 says... If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can they do? They rebuild. And so this foundation, a new foundation, much must be laid. That's what happened to us. Listen to this, gang. That's what happened. We had a foundation for a relationship with the Lord there in the Garden of Eden. God laid the foundation. It was a grassy one. It was paradise. It was beautiful. Rivers and trees and fruit trees and vegetables and all that we needed was right there with God. He gave one law. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Everything else is yours. Just don't touch that one. He laid a foundation for a relationship. It was there in the garden in the cool of the day that Adam would walk with the Lord in His presence, be with Him as God had designed in the very beginning. But in our sin nature, we became sin-sick and idolatrous, chasing the gods of this world, and we needed a remedy. The foundation was broken by the sin of man. And so we became captive in our own sinful spiritual Babylon. What happens when a person's heart is stirred up and they come to Jesus? A new foundation is laid. 
That foundation is not your works. It's not your decision to come to the Lord. It's not even your faith. The new foundation, Paul puts it this way, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Jesus is the new foundation laid down for our lives. They went back, they had to rebuild, and they started with a new foundation in this new era. And that's exactly what happens with us. A new era, there's construction and there's restoration of life as life in Christ begins. Part 1. Just like Ezra, part 1. Okay, we're called God's building, built on the foundation of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us. And that's part one of the story. But wait, wait, there's a part two. A second aspect of this for us, and that is the instruction and the reformation of our lives. That's when Ezra comes into the picture, chapter 7 through 10. That's where our lives start to get interesting again. This is the very transformational process that we've been talking about. And I find it interesting that the Lord in His Word continues to bring this up again and again over the last several weeks. Transformation. Transformation. How does it work? Instruction and reformation. Listen to in Ezra chapter 7. Skip over there real quickly. Ezra chapter 7, verse 9. Speaking of Ezra, it says, On the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. We we sing that song, I have seen the good hand of God. Well, the good hand of God was upon him. For verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's why Ezra goes up. Though the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple, the first half, when Ezra finally comes on the scene, his concern is not rebuilding the temple. His concern is rebuilding, restoring, teaching, instructing the people. Seeing them come closer and back to the Lord. Here comes this scribe, Ezra the scribe, with a passion for the Word and a heart for instruction. And by the way, Ezra is likely the writer of three Hebrew books, the Chronicles, the book of Ezra, And Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Do you remember what that psalm is about primarily? Anyone? It makes sense. It's about the Word. Over and over and over. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it absolutely makes sense that Ezra would write that psalm because he was so about the Word. He was a teacher of the Word and he wanted to instruct the people in the Word of God so that they would never again end up in a Babylon like they did before when they lost the Word. Reformation, gang, even revival, as we've talked about, absolutely requires instruction. If you are not instructed in the Word of God, you will very quickly get lost in the things of the world. Get confused, even by seemingly spiritual things around you. We need the ongoing instruction of the Word. And rabbinical scholars will credit Ezra with the development of the synagogue system. It began with Ezra. He was the one who threw out Judah and said, Hey, let's set up schools of teaching and instruction. And we'll call these schools synagogues. And that's the primary reason, even in Israel today and among the Jews in the world, that's the primary reason for a synagogue is teaching. That's where the scrolls are kept. That's where the Word is. That's where the rabbis gather and teach their students. And Ezra would kick that whole thing off. In fact, they would later refer to Ezra and his companions as men of the great synagogue. But there's a problem with this direction of instruction if we take it by itself. Something happened here, down the line, from Ezra, four, five hundred years roll by, And you come to Jesus' day and you have a group of men called the Pharisees who were very much men of instruction. They were very much keepers of the letter of the law. But they lost the Spirit. So much so that when Jesus, the fulfillment of law, appears, rather than seeing Him for who He was based on being rightly instructed in the Word, they fulfilled other prophecies by rejecting Him themselves and crucifying Him. Because they were only about instruction. And we have to be careful about that. And I hope, you know, from time to time we've been called a teaching church and that's wonderful. And yes, we're in the Word and we are taking God at His Word and we do a lot of Bible study. But boy, if it stops at study for you, you will miss everything God is really trying to do here. 
Because you see, in this part two of our lives, there's another absolutely key factor. There is instruction. And instruction is absolutely required for reformation, but there's something else as well. Anyone wondering what Ezra's name means? We know Zerubbabel was forged in Babylon. How about Ezra? Check this out. Ezra who shows up in chapter 7, in part 2 of the book. His name means my helper. My helper. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me, Jesus says. Ezra means helper. I love God's Word. Put the whole thing together. The story begins with a people in need of a remedy. And so the Lord gives them over to their sin because you've got to know that you're sin sick in order to seek a cure. That's why we have to repent. We have to come to the place in our lives where we recognize we need a Savior. If we don't get there, if we don't know that we're sinners, what do we need Jesus for? But God hands us over to our sin that we might recognize our great need for a Savior. That's how the story begins. Then along comes Cyrus. That is God's shepherd. God's anointed. Well, Jesus is our great shepherd. He's the anointed one who stirs up our hearts. He is the attraction. And we are drawn to Him. Well, and then the people begin to return even as the foundation is laid for the temple. Jesus is the foundation. We are the temple. And then finally, as Ezra comes along as the Helper, Jesus said He would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, His Spirit to us from the Father. Ezra's story is your story and mine. To walk through the book of Ezra is to walk through the Christian life. And we're going to do that over the next several weeks. One last thing to note here before we finish. God is in His heaven. God is in His heaven. What do you mean? As with Ezra, these days in which we live are days of stirring. There's a lot of stirring going on in the world today. Jerusalem is a cup of trembling for the nations. Do you realize? I don't know if I shared this Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Israel's on the verge of attacking Iran. And all indications are it will happen by December of this year. Russia just said this morning, if Israel attacks Iran, it will be the absolute worst thing that can happen in the entire world. And there is threat, there is veiled threat coming out of Russia to Israel. You attack Iran, our allies, watch out. There are things right now being stirred. There are wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are earthquakes in diverse places. There are nations perplexed at the roaring of the seas. What is going on with tsunamis and and floods? And God is in His heaven. God is in His heaven. There's a name that is almost exclusively used by Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel. It's also used a couple of times, interestingly, in the middle of the book of Revelation. And the name is God of Heaven. Nine times in the book of Ezra, the Lord is referred to as God of Heaven. Well, why is that? It was a name gang that was never used for God when, he was, when His glory, His name, were there in the temple in Jerusalem. Because He wasn't just God in Heaven. He was God in Jerusalem. He was God among His people. He was dwelling right there in the center of His people. But after the captivity, while the people were in captivity, as Cyrus's heart was beginning to be stirred, He was God of Heaven. God of Heaven. These were the days when the Lord had removed Himself at least until the time when He would come again. And so He was God of Heaven. For you see, whenever Jerusalem is trampled underfoot... He removes Himself from its presence. He is God of heaven. Do you see the parallel? Again, Jesus was here. 
on earth, in the flesh, His bare feet walking the sod of Judea. He was here in person. And John said in John 1.14, We saw His glory. We saw Him. We walked with Him, talked with Him. He said, we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was here. Where is He now? God of heaven. In these days of stirring, Jesus is in heaven. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting from that time onward until His enemies might be made a footstool for His feet. We have seen His Spirit. We have His Spirit, gang, but listen, Jesus currently is residing in heaven. He is currently God in heaven. But the angels told the apostles in Acts 1.11, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. Cyrus would say, whoever, is there, um, whoever there is among you of all His people, verse 3, may His God be with Him. Let Him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus says, whoever wants to go up, go up. Because you always go up to Jerusalem. But when Jesus is ready to call us home, guess where we will go? We will go up. The God of heaven will call, and we will go up. Paul calls that our blessed hope, Titus 2.13. The promise of Jesus calling us up and calling us home. And Jeremiah would write in Jeremiah 14.8, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. Listen, are you distressed? Are you concerned about the world roundabout? Maybe your distress is much more personal. Maybe it's right here at home. Maybe it's where you're at in your life. You're distressed. You're worried. You need to be comforted. Gang, the hope of Israel. God of heaven, Jesus Christ, is coming back. And He's coming back soon. These are the days of stirring. And His Spirit is stirring things up. Let's pray together. Fathers, we now prepare to proceed next week as we continue on in the book of Ezra. We pray that You will open our eyes to the stirring. Lord, we praise You for what You did with Cyrus, King of Persia. We praise You that You named him. We love, Father, it is exciting to us to see these prophecies as they were written and fulfilled undeniably. It lends power and and credence. and Lord, so much to Your Word here. And though we are a people of faith, we still, we look to Your Word and we're thrilled to see how it bears itself out and proves itself prophetically and historically. And so thank You for that, Lord, even this morning. But Father, I pray as You are stirring things up in this world, I ask Your Holy Spirit to continue to stir in our hearts as a fellowship. There is much before us. Should You tarry, there are things You're calling us to do. May we respond with transformed lives and hearts. People of instruction in the Word, but Father, people of revival by the Helper, Your Holy Spirit. I pray this blessing over us all. Take us forward, Father. And when the question arises, who wants to go up? We are first in line, our hands raised, saying, we do. We want to go up. Father, bless Your Word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.